In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the fourth Sunday after Pentecost, and we continue in Luke's Gospel, uh, now in chapter 10. And we're seeing him again with his face set towards Jerusalem. And as we saw last week, it's very important to the Samaritans, these cousins of the Jews that he's passing through, this distinction about Jerusalem and uh, its place and uh, their, their culture and in the religious cult. And uh, we see that it has uh, immense and significant multi-layered importance to Jesus and to the Jews of his day. And uh, we see this kind of um, explored in Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah, this is the last chapter of the book of Isaiah, the prophet. We're in chapter 66, uh, near the end of the the chapter entirely. And uh, Isaiah is continuing to warn uh, the Jews in Judea. Remember that he is spending, like uh, some of his other contemporary prophets, a lot of time uh, warning the northern kingdom of Israel against their uh, demise. And indeed, it's in the time of Isaiah that he sees the Assyrians come down and uh, destroy, take over the nation of Israel. It gets renamed Samaria. It gets um, reallocated and they move many people away. And then uh, after Isaiah had been done warning the northern kingdom, and that was to no avail, he turns his attention to Judah, to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he says, you're going to fall in the same way if you don't turn to the Lord. And his desire is uh, to to have you turn to him. And while we have this... uh, particularity of the time and place of Isaiah, like all the prophets, he's speaking about things that that have happened. He speaks about things that are happening or are going to happen. And then he talks about things that are going to happen in a far distant future. So Isaiah is talking about multiple futures. He talks about the coming of the Messiah. He prepares the people for the coming of the Messiah, which happens, uh, you know, 700 years after him. But then he also prepares us for the second coming of Christ, an event that hasn't come yet. So we see this spiraling of time that Isaiah describes, a time that moves forward but that repeats in its, um, in its patterns. And so he, he tells the people, again he reminds them that, that the Lord's desire is to abide with his people, his desire is to dwell with his people. And Jerusalem becomes a symbol for that. It is a particular place in a particular time where the Lord has drawn his people together. It has the, the, the tabernacle that then is built as the temple and this is the, the place of worship of God. Uh, we see the temple as a, a place where heaven and earth meet where the Lord has uh, instructed them to build a place where they can see all of creation and they can see it as kind of a working model for creation where the priest that walks in is a symbol for Adam and Eve and and man's place in creation and so the temple is a kind of a dollhouse if you will it's a reminder of the people that God is king over heaven and earth and that he's placed his people into this creation uh, to bear his image and to bear his image they need to live lives of righteousness And so if we're going to be in his creation, we're going to be in his presence, uh, we have to uh, behave like him. We have to come to learn to to live and to love like him and to be these image bearers. And so this is the practice that's going on in Jerusalem and at the temple. 
And so Jerusalem becomes more than just a place where there's kind of a transactional worship, you know, burn a couple of cows and I'll look the other way, right? Which is kind of the way that it starts to look to uh, some of the the simpler people uh, like uh, the religious elite, right? Who's come to think of it as a transactional enterprise. But the Lord is saying, I want uh, something much more and different than that. I want to dwell with you and I want to be in a relationship with you that's like uh, the relationship of husband and wife and like uh, father and child. And so this is what he does here very beautifully in Isaiah 66. Uh, First he says um, that he has this kind of romantic relationship, right? That he uh, loves her and that he's going to rejoice over those who mourn over her. And this is kind of a a bride image that he has. Uh, But then that bride image quickly turns then to a mother image uh, that she um, is going to nurse, uh, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. So now Jerusalem is this mother figure uh, that is consoling and nurturing uh, his people. And so now we have this uh, this relationship of, of Jerusalem as the mother and the people of God as uh, the children. And he talks about drinking deeply with delight from her abundance. So his desire is to uh, provide for his people richly and with abundance. And then he talks about the peace like a river, which we've seen over and over again. We've seen it as a fountain. We've seen it as a stream. And of course, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of God that he pours out in Pentecost uh, that is this renewing, reviving spirit uh, for his people. And he pours into them this overflowing stream. And again, he says, "Um, you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced on her knee. And you know, I teach parenting all day long in my other job, so I could go on and on about how important this is, how important it is uh, to nurse children, how important it is to carry children upon the hip rather than in a bucket, and how important it is to bounce a child on the knee, face in, right? Because that requirement of face-to-face is so important uh, to show and to reflect the child when they smile, to smile back, and when they frown, to frown back so that we get that mirroring. And the Lord is describing how important that is, uh, that we have that back-and-forth interaction like a child and parent um, with him. And then somehow he kind of subtly shifts. So he says, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. So now the Lord is saying it's not that Jerusalem is his bride and is the mother to his children, but he's saying that he is the mother to his children. Now he says, I'm taking that place. I'm going to treat you as a mother. I'm going to feed you with abundance. I'm going to carry you upon my hip. I'm going to to bounce you upon my knee. So the Lord is saying, I want to be in that direct, intimate relationship with you to care for you. And then, of course, he says that there are going to be consequences, that there's going to be a consequence to falling away or to walking away from that relationship. If we uh, reject that relationship, he says there's going to be consequence, um, which is uh, fire and judgment, uh, which is a really wonderful thing. And and we can see uh, the importance of fire and judgment. Uh, Just for a second, we saw it said so beautifully in this psalm that we read this morning, uh, Psalm 66. He talks about how we're going to be tried as silver, right? It's such an important uh, verse. He says, I will try them as silver is tried. What does that mean? When silver is put into fire, it's not to destroy the silver, 
right? It's to purify it. It's to remove impurities so that the silver can be pure and so that it can uh, work its purpose. If the silver has a bunch of dirt and other semi-precious metals in it, it's no longer as useful, right? It's no longer as good. It's going to break and it's going to corrode. But silver that's tried has this enormous value. And so that's what the Lord is wanting to do with us with that fire. He's not wanting to destroy us. He's wanting to purify us. He's wanting to make us more valuable. He's wanting to make us more useful. He's wanting to remove those things that would corrupt and to destroy us. And that's how we're going to meet fire. We're all going to experience the fire of the Holy Spirit. The question is whether we'll cower from the flames and say, oh no, don't destroy me. Or whether we'll say, ah, the purifying warmth of the Holy Spirit that's going to remove impurities and imperfections from me. And this is a process that takes place, a process that takes place in discipleship. And we see that process uh, described here in these chapters of Luke. Uh, Chapter 9, we saw the 12 called. And of course, we have uh, the 12 now. We've got a complete set of the 12 um, disciples upon our walls. And then beginning of chapter 10, we see the 70 called. I'm going to say 70. The King James says 70. When they did these newer translations, I'm not going to go too much into this, I promise. When they did some of these newer translations, they found some ancient uh, manuscripts that said 72. And so they decided to go with 72. And most of you, if you have an NIV or ESV translation, there will be a little note that say some manuscripts say 70, some say 72. I like 70, so I'm going to say that. Two of, um, two of the gospel writers are member of that group of 70. So the way that we have our icons arranged is so that the disciples are on the far end. So we have Matthew, who's a disciple, one of the 12, and a gospel writer here. And then he's joined with, with Andrew, right? And continues on with those disciples. And then we have the other 12 disciple that's a gospel writer, John, on this side. So then he continues with his brother, James, right? So they're next to each other. But then on the inside, we have the two gospel writers who were members of the 70, Luke and Mark. So we know there's this much larger group that's with Jesus, at least from the time of his baptism, a large group that they uh, call Matthias from, if you remember, after Judas um, has died, right? And so they say, let us choose from among them those who have been with us since the baptism. So there's this large group, and at least we have uh, Luke and Mark in that group. And they refer to themselves like the other gospel writers by different names, right? Uh, Mark calls himself John Mark, or he refers to that one that ran away in the garden, right, that had his cloak taken off. Uh, Luke says um, a disciple and Clopas were walking on the road to Emmaus, right, so he doesn't name himself. So these are two of the 70. And he sends the 70, just like he did the 12, out two by two to prepare the way, to declare the kingdom of God um, as he is on his way to Jerusalem, right? This is what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be going out um, and they're supposed to be declaring uh, the kingdom of God. They're supposed to be praying um, as they go along and they're supposed to be describing what it is that the Lord is doing. And so uh, what do we see here? We see Jesus doing this, right? And then he gathers a group around him and he says, okay, now walk with me while I do it. This is what discipleship looks like. And then he says, now you're going to go out and do it and then come back and tell me. So this is how we disciple people. We say, watch me do it. Then I'm going to watch you do it. Then you're going to go out and do it. And then you're going to come back and tell me about it. So he does this with the 12 and now he's done this with the 70. 
So he's inviting them to participate in his ministry. This is really important because sometimes we think, oh, the the ministry is just for a certain select people. No, we're all called to be ministers. We are a priesthood of all believers. And part of the Christian walk is to learn how to be a Christian. And we do that by practice and by being discipled and mentored, right? The Christian church is like a barrel of monkeys. Do you remember the toy, the barrel of monkeys, right? And those monkeys always had what? A hand down and a hand up, right? That's how we are. We've always got a hand up because somebody needs to disciple us. And we've always got a hand down. We're always raising somebody else up, right? If there's a monkey in that barrel that's missing one of those hands, what do we do with that monkey? It's no good for the barrel. We've got to get rid of it, right? What good is it going to do? We have always got to have a hand down to lift up somebody else. And we've always got to have a hand up to be mentored. And this is how the 70 are living in discipleship with Christ. They go out and they proclaim the kingdom and they see wonderful benefits. And he tells them lots of things about how they're going to walk. And you remember some of these things change after his resurrection. He says, remember I sent you out with nothing. This time you're going to take everything because you're not coming back. Right? And so these kinds of things change. But he says, um, you're going to go into a house and you're not going to um, shop around. Right? So you're not going to go into somebody's house and say, oh, you're eating what? Right? Is there anything more contemporary America than that? Oh, I don't eat that. Oh, I don't like that. And we encourage it in our children. Oh, I don't eat those things. Jesus says explicitly, eat what's given to you at the table. And then what do we do? We minister to that household as long as we can, as long as we need to be there. So we're not moving from place to place, looking for a good situation. But we're ministering as long as there's a response to the preaching of the kingdom of God. And then they come back and they tell him in very excited terms how wonderful it is that great power has been done in what they do, right? That they've um, exhibited some great power in casting out demons and healing. And Jesus says, uh, don't be excited about that. What you're supposed to be excited about is that you are in the kingdom of heaven, that you are participating in the kingdom of God. That's what you need to be enthused about. And so they had fallen a little bit victim to pride, and it's understandable that they would. And so this is why we need to turn to Galatians, uh, which maybe is one of the first letters that we have written by St. Paul, because he's been warning the Galatians over and over again about the the temptation of this kind of pride because of course they're very new Christians and they're being tempted into pride they're being tempted into looking to people that are uh, doing miraculous healing and other things Um, and he's saying um, you know that we need to live our lives quietly in service of God with humility and he says this in so many different ways and he says that uh, the way that we need to be Christians is with a spirit of gentleness and that we need to keep watch on ourselves Keep watch on ourselves. In other words, keep watch on our own hearts. What do we need to keep watch from? We need to keep watch from the temptation of pride. The temptation of thinking too much of ourselves, right? The temptation of thinking that that we're somehow better, that we can be the monkey without the hand up or the hand down, right? That we're going to be some special case. And so he says that we have to keep watch. Watchmen are good at their job if they really believe that the enemy and their supervisor are going to be coming at any minute. Right? If you really believe the boss is going to be showing up at any minute and the enemy is going to be showing up at any minute, if you really believe that, you can keep watch. 
If you think, ah, oh, they're asleep, nobody's coming, the boss is asleep, he's not going to come, then what does the watchman do? He falls asleep, right? So for us to keep watch, we've got to really believe that we're going to fall victim to pride and to arrogance and to deceiving ourselves. We've got to say, oh yeah, that can really happen to me. And then when we realize that, we realize, oh yeah, I'm just as susceptible to this pride as everybody else, then we're able to, uh, to keep watch and to do it effectively, lest we be tempted. And then he has these two things that, again, seem to be kind of contradictory, which, um, like so many things in Scripture, appear to be a contradiction, but are actually a paradox. A paradox are two things that look to be contradictory, that are actually in agreement. And he says that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens, and we're supposed to carry each other's load. So how is that, that we're supposed to bear each other's burdens, but, but we're supposed to, to bear our own load? Well, what's he saying here? He's saying that we have to always be ready to encourage one another. We always have to have that hand down, right? So that we're encouraging others, so that we're, we're, we're catching them when they fall, so that we're um, instructing them. We say, oh, look, here's a temptation for you. Here's a difficulty you're having. I want to help you with that. As Father Frank said, we're going to be ready for an intervention, right? We're going to be looking to say, how can I lovingly encourage you to turn around and go the other way? And then at the end of the day, we're ultimately responsible for ourselves. So I'm going to do all that I can to help, but at the end of the day, we're all going to bear our own burden. We're all going to be answerable. So there isn't the idea that suddenly I've lost personal responsibility. That's just not in the scriptures at all. And so St. Paul says we bear each other's burdens and we always carry our personal responsibility. And he says that while we do that, we have to not grow weary of doing good and not give up. Why does he say that? Because we do. We do grow weary of doing good. We do grow weary and think that we're going to give up because people don't respond. Because um, people don't act the way that we think that they should act. They don't respond the way that we think that they should respond. And so he says that what we have to expect is that we're going to be persecuted for this. So we're always acting, we're always searching to do good, and what we're going to expect is going to come back to us for that good is persecution. The other temptation or the pitfall that we fall into is we think, oh, Lord, I've had my hand up looking for help, I've had my hand down looking to disciple others, and so good things should happen to me because of this, right? I should get healing, I should get providence, I should get some kind of special thing. And the Lord says, uh, what's going to happen is you're going to be treated the same way that I was treated. You're going to be persecuted for this. This is the promise that we're going to, to, to receive, is that um, we too will suffer for the name of Christ. And he says that there's no outward sign that we're looking for. There isn't this circumcision, but the new creation, the change in our hearts that we're going to be transformed. And he, he talks about this, this relationship of the Israel of God. The Israel of God. That takes us right back to Jacob. You remember Jacob wrestled, right? He wrestled with Esau in the womb, and he wrestled with the Lord in the wilderness. And the Lord uh, said, let me go. And, and Jacob said, not until you bless me. And then he renames Jacob Israel because he held on to the Lord for a blessing. 
St. Paul says we're to be the Israel of God. We're supposed to be holding on for blessing, holding on for dear life, holding on to him with all that we have, with all that we are, and he is faithful. He will try us and purify us. He will teach us to be good. He will hold us upon his hip and bounce us upon his knee, and he will nurse us as an infant with all abundance, that we may dwell with him in the house of God this day and forevermore.